hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Healthy Christian Project. I'm not joined by anyone today except myself, and I want to be—I want to speak about the state of the church. So, for the sake of this episode, anytime I say the church, I'm not just speaking about the local church, but I'm speaking about all churches—the Church of God. So the other day I was stumbling on Instagram and I came across a video and I think it was for humor purposes, but to be honest, I'm not quite sure. It could have been completely real. So I have no idea. Um, I'm going to play it out loud and we'll go from there. Young people coming to the church, I fear we're not going to be able to afford our zip lines anymore. The zip lines are like an integral part of the Sunday service. And we're barely making payments on the EDM prayer hall we got last year. I feel like if we don't get more people to the church next month, we're not going to be able to go to Disneyland. We're going to have to go the month after. This was the christening jacuzzi we were going to be putting in the basement of the church. And then we ran out of money. So what? We're just not supposed to have a christening jacuzzi? So this is kind of what the church is dealing with. This this priest, I'm going to guess by the way he was dressed, first was talking about less and less young people coming to the church so they can't afford zip lines and then they can't go to Disneyland and then they can't afford their jacuzzi. Now, I'm really, really hoping that this was for humor purposes, but it's kind of sad. You know, I was watching a documentary the other day about a megachurch and it was called a mega church exposed and wow how upset i got from that documentary i was so grieved i was grieved by the state of the church and so as i was reading it i was getting more and more heartbroken because i was thinking to myself wow this the church represents the community of believers the community of believers that that love and obey Jesus. And they they do represent Jesus to the entire world. But this is what they were behaving in. Making the church a business and all tithing, all donations would not go to ministry or anything like that, but would actually go to the pastor's pockets so he could afford expensive clothes, expensive shoes, and, and lots of jewelry pastors who were speaking on Sundays to their congregations were being unfaithful to their wives. The church was trying to stay relevant and sacrificed its beliefs and its traditions in order to grow in popularity among the young people. The church was attacking anyone who spoke out against it. Members of the church would judge people judge others for doing something that they themselves did. You know what happens when people get entangled in a church like this? Members are judging others who drink, smoke, having sex outside of marriage, and yet the members are doing the exact same thing. What kind of, think about the kind of reputation that puts on the church. To share a personal story, I had a friend who stopped going to church and we had a really deep conversation about the church and about his beliefs now and why he stopped going. And you know what he told me? I asked him why. 
And he told me that the people in the church would judge him because he would drink and occasionally smoke and he would talk to girls. But that wasn't the bad part. They would judge him for that. And he found out that they were doing the exact same thing. And he was saying, it's one thing if you judge someone and you're not participating in that activity. But it's another thing if you do judge someone and you're trying to hide that you're doing the exact same thing. They were getting drunk on the weekends, smoking a lot. They were also having sex outside of marriage. And yet they were attacking him for it. It's sad. And he told me he knows several atheists who have better moral standards and don't judge others compared to the Christians that he knew in his life. He hated the hypocrisy of the church. And what's sad is, consequently, that stains the name of Christianity and it stains the name of Jesus. Now, obviously, this is a fallacy because Jesus can't be blamed for the poor conduct of his followers. For example, to give you a practical example, in my in my business, I may advise someone to go and work out 30 minutes four times a week and also to drink two liters of water a day. Okay? That's what I tell them to do. In order to reach their goals, they have to do this. Now, if they don't do that, it's not my fault. I gave them the framework and I told them all they needed to do to reach their goals. If they don't do it, it's not my fault. But regardless, it's it's almost like my reputation is being blamed because I gave them a system and it's not working for them. But they're not following it. It's still not my fault, though. Now, to take it a little bit further, if they begin judging others who don't work out four times a week and drink two liters of water, it's still not my fault. I didn't do anything. I just gave them the framework. They didn't obey it. The same goes with Christians. If Christians are participating in these things against the word of Jesus, it's not Jesus' fault. It's the Christian's fault. But our society doesn't understand that. They see a hypocritical church and and assume the whole religion sucks. And that's where people get the idea that they hate organized religion. Because as Christians, we often don't do a good job representing Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And something that's come up with modern religion and progressive Christianity is the idea of a churchless Christianity. That's the idea that it is Christ who saves us, not the church. Therefore, all we need is Jesus. Maybe you've met a Christian who claims to follow Jesus but doesn't believe in the church. Well, something to know as we open up scripture here is Christ instituted the church. When we open up Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Speaking to Simon Peter here, Jesus is talking that he will build the church, not Simon Peter, not the disciples. He will build it. And of course, the disciples, they they set the foundation as well in a way. But we read later in Peter that Christ was the cornerstone. Therefore, Christ instituted the church. It's not a man-made thing. It is by Jesus. And to those who complain that the church has so many problems, you can't really complain that because 
all the churches have problems. Every letter in the New Testament that Paul wrote to a church was written to a church that had problems. So I guess my question for you is, is there a perfect church? Well, I'm going to say no. But there is a church that we can draw inspiration from, a model church, if you will, and that's the church found in Acts 2. I'm going to read from Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So a few things to notice. There is four things that this church is doing and then four outcomes from it. For the sake of this, I'm going to speak about those four and also give practical steps for our churches today in order to follow those. So number one, it says that the uh, that these people devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Now, this is important. Looking at who these people are, just the verse before it, it says, those who received his word were being baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So this became a church of over 3,000 people in one day. This church was just from the preaching of Peter at Pentecost. 3,000 people accepted the word of God that Jesus was the savior and they were baptized and became this church at Jerusalem. And so the first thing we notice is that they devoted themselves to the apostles teachings. So we know that Jesus chose the apostles. When we open up John 14 and chapter 26, uh, sorry, John chapter 14 and verse 26, Jesus talks to his disciples and he says, the helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we notice here that Jesus promises his disciples will understand everything that he said and remember it perfectly because of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that the apostles didn't just come up with the stuff at the top of their head and have a hazy memory of it, but it is coming straight from the words of Jesus of which the Holy Spirit is inspiring. Meaning that these people in this church are taking their, their teaching straight out of the apostles' mouth, straight out of Jesus. They're not coming up with it themselves. It's being taught by Jesus. It was taught by Jesus and has passed down. And so some practical steps. Anytime we come up for a sermon or, or come up to teach, I think it's important to actually read scripture and devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings. I try to make it 
something I try to make it a fact, a point that when I come up to speak at my church or even to do this podcast, I'm not coming up to share Ely's teachings or Ely's opinions, but I'm coming up to share the apostles' teachings, to share Jesus' words. Now, something else we notice is that all these people were in fellowship, meaning they were all in relationship together. There was genuine love between them. Fellowship does not mean that you see someone once a week because you just happen to both go to the church that day and you guys have coffee afterwards and and you sing happy birthday and call it a day there. There is a genuine love between these believers. They genuinely love each other and want to spend time together. Some practical steps. You have to love and serve each other. Now, what does that look like? Well, there's a bunch of things. One, verbally stating your love, complimenting someone, saying, hey, Rick, I don't know any Ricks, but let's just give an example. Hey, Rick, I see you did your hair today. That looks great. Or you know what else? The other day I was up at my church just getting ready, practicing the piano, and someone I didn't know came up to me and said, you know what? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you're incredibly faithful. Every single week I have seen you come up here week after week, play the piano. I don't know if anyone thanks you, but I know you're doing a service and you're doing it for God. And those words gave me so much joy. Just verbally give someone some words of affirmation. Just give someone some love with your words. How else we can we can serve one another when someone has something serve them. If someone needs help moving things in their home, serve them. If some, if an old lady needs help crossing the streets, serve them. You know what I mean? Serving one another. Another thing we can do is give. Give your resources, whether that be money, whether that be time, whether that be your expertise. My uncle, actually, I can, I can literally state something for my whole family, but my uncle, he works in taxes and he always gives his expertise free of charge to his family. And I think that's beautiful because he's giving out of the generosity of his heart. My other uncle, who is a doctor, he never charges his family members, church members when they come. He always gives. That is genuine love and fellowship between one another. Something else, spend quality time with each other, visit each other, laugh with each other, eat, pray. God made us relational creatures. Now, something else we notice is that these disciples devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. In other words, communion or the Lord's Supper, which was also instituted by Christ in Matthew 26, verse 26. He said, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the breaking of bread was instituted by Jesus. And the early church shows us that this was an essential part of their worship. It wasn't something that they could choose whether they wanted to do or not. Nowadays, what grieves me is that many churches neglect the breaking of bread. Many people don't partake in it, rather ignore it or or just let it pass by when it comes around. Sometimes it's canceled if, if, if there's a guest speaker or an event happening at the church. 
Yet we see that the early church regarded the breaking of bread as an essential part of their worship. So some practical steps. Be joyful when it's time for breaking of bread, knowing that you are partaking in the body and blood of Christ, remembering his death and his resurrection. It's like spiritual food for the soul. He says that he is the bread of life and that whoever drinks from him will, will, will drinks his living water will never thirst again. Practical steps. Don't sacrifice the breaking of bread when you have a guest speaker come around to your church. Jesus doesn't say bring guest speakers in remembrance of me, but he says do this in remembrance of me. Finally, we see that this church devoted themselves to prayer. Now, prayer, it's a small word, but encompasses something so powerful and so meaningful. It includes everything from corporate prayer to individual prayer, from lament to thanksgiving, confessing your sins. There's so much behind this word. A whole nother podcast episode can be given. But practical steps, pray. Pray out loud. Pray in your heart. Thank God. Confess your sins. Pray for someone. Pray with someone. Pray pray with your friends. Pray alone. Pray in your room. Just pray and always thank God for everything that he's blessed you with. Now, we see some outcomes. This is an interesting one. When we look at Acts, Acts 2, we see that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, just a, a short word on this. This does not mean that the church here was communist, which is an actual legitimate claim by the Communist Party, stating that one of the first forms of communism we see is the early church. This is not communism. Another translation says they shared their belongings with one another. Again, this does not mean that they had no possessions. And it's, again, this is also not a command, but rather just something we see, a practice that happened. Luke is just telling us what happened here. He's not telling us that we have to do this. And we know also that other churches that Paul wrote letters to did not practice this. So what happened here? I think that this was a voluntary decision so that God's people who were in, Jer in Jerusalem at this, at this time would supply those who needed something with what they needed. I think that the fact that 3,000 people converted in one day, and it says at the end of the chapter, the Lord was adding to their number daily. There's clearly a lot of people coming in here. And maybe a lot of people didn't have what they needed. And so these people who are part of the church didn't want the gospel to be diminished. They wanted new believers to stay. And they understood that everything belongs to God. And that they are stewards of what God gives them. And so when any needs arose, people felt happy to give to those needs. Something else we notice is that the church met together every single day, daily. They broke bread in their homes, not just in the church. They probably even did Bible studies and ministries. And so I have a question for you. Is there anyone in your life who you see every day? Most of you are probably thinking of your spouse or your coworker or something like that, maybe even your kids. But if it's not your spouse, coworker, or kids, who are you seeing every day? 
chances are that person is definitely a very close friend. And you guys enjoy your time together. You enjoy fellowship together. Meeting someone every single day is an expression of love, genuine love. And we see that this church had that genuine love with one another. Now, this is an interesting one. I'm going to break it into a few pieces here. They were praising God. They gained the favor of all people. And God added to their number new people who were being saved daily. Now, again, something to note is that Luke is just telling us what happened. He's not telling us that if we do X or if we do everything listed above, we will be guaranteed that all people will gain favor with us and we will add new Christians to our lives daily. Yet, with that being said, I think that a faithful church is attractive to those who are lost because the church is made up of those who are lost. I think the fact that this church won the favor of all people may be one of the most amazing things about this passage. Can you imagine a church where non-believers look and are impressed? Not because the church is compromising their values to line up with cultural ones, but because they truly represent Christ. Today, non-believers look at the church and think they're hypocrites. How can we change that? Something else to see is that the Lord added to their number daily. Again, I think that converting new people to Christians is not our work. It's the Lord's work and only the Lord can do that. And we see here that if we commit ourselves to following Christ and doing things the right way, God will bring who he wants and God will add to our number daily rather than us taking full responsibility and doing outreach and grieving when it's just the 30 of us who are here. There's no more pressure to conform to society because we know that God will grow the church for us. So essentially we are all hypocrites in the church. That's true because we can never live up to what Jesus said, but if we could, we wouldn't need him right? So therefore, we can't complain about not finding the perfect church, because as soon as you join that perfect church, it will no longer be perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect church, but our God is perfect. So we know that the church is established by Christ, where all of us meet together. We break bread. We're in fellowship with one another. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings. We offer our gifts and our challenge, our, our, our talents are mature and being perfected each day. And collectively, our church has a vision of perfection that we should work towards. And inevitably, we will fail. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try working towards our vision of perfection, because if we don't work towards something, we will never grow, never learn, or never move closer to what God has planned for us. And so we all must do our parts in advancing the church of God. If you listened all the way through to the end, thank you. I hope God blesses you and 
gives you some wisdom and some insight on what he's calling you to do this week, whether that's in the church or outside of the church, whether that's meeting in fellowship with someone or breaking bread or devoting yourself to the apostles' teachings. I pray that God be with you this week and give you all you need according to his riches and glory. Catch us next time on another episode of the Healthy Christian Project. Thank you.